0: Welcome to another Calvary Baltimore B-Side with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. B-Sides are a companion to the weekly sermon, giving an in-depth look behind the teaching. Now with running commentary to complement this week's sermon, here's Pastor Josh.
1: We're live! Well, hello everybody. Happy B-Sides. I am, so I have one of these, uh, I have one of these desks that you hit a button and it goes right here. I can probably show you, ready? (laughs) And I can break it all the way up, which is awesome. Uh, So I'm standing today, just got to keep moving. Uh, Anyways, we are in Revelation chapter 13 today. Our focus will be on verses 7 through uh, 10. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Let's hop right on in here. And I saw the beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and 7 heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head and the beast that I saw was like a leopard its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months." It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in <clears throat> heaven. Okay. That uh that, that that was where we were last week. Here we are, new new territory for this week. Verse seven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people, language, and Nation, I I love this biblical theme, especially as we think of the Johannian works. So, John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And, of course, he's penning the book of Revelation. And so, whenever you want to do, like, word, whenever you want to do word studies, uh, the best way to do that is to first do it, like... Sorry, a little piece of my nail scratched my arm. I'm like, well, that's problematic. I got to get rid of that. So when Paul uses the word grace... It's helpful first if you say, "I want to know what this word grace means." The first thing you do is to understand how Paul uses the word grace. So you go across all of Paul, the Pauline corpus, all of across Paul's works, and see how Paul uses grace in Galatia and Philippi and First and Second Corinth. And you, you know you go through all of Paul's works. Well, here we are when we want to understand what 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 John means. We do. We do word studies and theme studies first across John's works, uh, and then maybe the New Testament, and then the whole Bible. And so we we can do word studies and thematic studies that way. And I love, in the Gospel of John, and the reason I'm getting to this, the reason I love, uh, I'm fixed on this conquering here, and and authority here, is because this... uh, theme of authority has been really big in the gospel of john one of the things that you know why, one of the things is we, we have four gospels we have one gospel but the gospel according to saint matthew saint mark saint luke And Saint John, right? So we we have we have one message, one good news, but it's told from four different angles. And one of the reasons that God had done it that way is because each of the four uh, gospel accounts give a different perspective, a different emphasis. You know, you'll see some overlap too. When when Jesus cleanses the temple in Mark, it's a detailed description of the timing of it. Uh, When we get to uh oh, no sound. Is this true? I'm hearing no sound. Let's see. Uh oh. Let's see. Check, 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 check. No. No sound. No, nope, no, nope. Rob and Patty, that's you guys. Well, anyways, when you do, when you do studies across live streams. All right. <laughs> See now I'm on live stream. When you do when you do uh well anyways when you when you when you look at the Gospel of John, each each of the four gospel perspectives gives a unique emphasis. Well, John really focuses on the authority of Jesus. So that's right. I was in Mark. Mark gives a detailed description of, of the triumphal entry. Matthew gives one from a different perspective. And so people go, ah, here's one of the great inconsistencies of the Bible. Matthew made it sound like the, the, the triumphal entry was one day, when really in Mark it was two. And it's like, No. Matthew knew what Mark wrote, and Matthew decided to write uh, a different way to write this account from a different point of view, a different emphasis the way he he saw. So anyways, in the Gospel of of John, according to St. John, uh, John is always emphasizing the authority of Jesus, Um, even when he's being mistreated or abused. Jesus, in in John's Gospel, is always in control, (laughs) Uh, And this is where we get that great scene when when Pilate says, Don't you know who I am, essentially? And Jesus, don't you know I have authority? And Jesus looks at him in in John's Gospel and goes, All the authority that you have has been given to you by my Father. Even when Jesus is before the leader of of this province, Jesus is the one who's ultimately uh, in, in charge. And so the point we want to connect here is any authority anyone has whether it be the president or kings or conquerors, whatever that may be, the authority that any person has on earth has been invested to them, has been given to them by God Almighty in heaven, who is the dispenser of all authority. Uh, it, It all comes from him. Man has no real authority in and of himself. And so God, that's why it says, also it was allowed to make war. And authority was given it over every tribe. This authority is given temporarily, not for the glory of the Antichrist, but for the glory of God ultimately, as we'll see. Verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who is slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Verse ten has a lot of Greek goodies in it. Uh, verse ten: If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. That word "captive" here typically means being taken captive in war. The implications to that being that Christians are described here as being arrested for their faith, as a prisoner of war, that the kingdom of darkness has arrested a soldier of God, a soldier of light. And so here we see that 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 the Antichrist, this war machine, is on the rise. But ultimately, all authority—what we're seeing is a military conflict of sorts. That God's army, the 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 those who have been sealed by God, the hundred and forty-four thousand, and those who have been influenced by them—they are also on the march as they take the nations for Jesus Christ, and these two clash in the Book of of, of Revelation. And so Jesus talks about prisoners of war, Christians as prisoners of war when evil uh, overtake the, the godly and put them in their evil systems. Then it says, if anyone is to be slain with the slow sword, with the sword he must be slain. Now obviously, <laughs> uh, but I, I do feel the need to clarify here, what this is describing is being put to death because of your faith. And, and and notice that both of these two sayings have military language in them. We have we 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 have captivity and we have the sword. And in the 1st century, if you were a casualty of war, You were either killed or wounded by the sword, or you were taken captive. So again, God is describing the church as at war with the kingdom of darkness. But contrary to the kingdom of darkness that uses corruption and coercion, God's kingdom fights with love and peace and good news and righteousness and truth. Let's... I wanted to I wanted to read to you guys uh, uh, something here. Let's let's get let's read the last verse. No. And then you're going to um, I want I want to read to you guys something that I think's cool. Let's (laughs) read verse ten. Sorry, verse ten, the last the last sentence here. Here it is. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And that's how this section ends. Before we're introduced to the false prophet so all of this evil that's been going is a call for the endurance and faith of our saints this reminds me of what paul said In Romans 5, 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So God allows this suffering because it produces more victory in Christ. As God's people are faithful unto death. But there are two very specific things God is working and demonstrating in His church here. And first is endurance and the second is faith. So first, endurance. Hoop aname. Hoop amane. This word for endurance means perseverance. Another way to think about this word is consistency. Interesting to think about endurance as consistency, or sometimes even patience. What is being described here is a pers- persevering, consistent faith. The more that I mature as a pastor, as, as in, in my walk with the Lord, I, I'm realizing how important it is to be enduringly consistent. (laughs) So when I I used to live in Abingdon and uh, I I had a neighbor who struggled with alcoholism and she went to a Methodist church for 30 years. For 30 years, she went to the Methodist church. And then through her alcoholism, she, she started to get sick and have health issues. And when she got sick, she got mad at God. And she stopped going to church. And she said, she said, you know, she feels like God failed her because she got sick. And this is just obviously, you know, I tried talking to her, but this is not consistency. This, of course, is a faith built upon what God can give me, <laughs> uh, not one out of thankfulness for saving our souls. Uh, but, but there was a lack of consistency in her theology there. And one minute she was red hot for the Lord. She went to church every Sunday. She never missed. And the next she fell away. There wasn't that faithful endurance that happened there. And then on the other end, you know, I I think about our, our dear sister, Terry Shaw, who's in hospice right now. You know, she'd been in church for years and years and years and years. I, I believe all her life. And when she got sick... She didn't say, "God, you failed me." No, she doubled down. You know, when I talk to her, she still loves the Lord deeply. She can't wait to be with Him. There is a faithful endurance, a consistency in God. So, what this word means in its context, "hoopanae," is in this context is regardless of if the Christian is on the beach in Kokomo or in a prison in Guantanamo, the saint is consistently faithful. You know, Dr. Frank says, he has this saying, you know what lukewarm is? It's it's not cold water. He, he says it's both hot and cold. It's both of them together. I, I think there's some wisdom there in that. You know, you see people and they're red hot for the Lord and then they're ice cold (laughs) for the Lord and they're just not enduring they're not being patiently consistent so what we're seeing here is that that the Christian as as life wanes and waxes as things are easy and hard and good and difficult uh, we need to be consistent we need to endure patiently And so God allows suffering in our lives sometimes to help teach us to be consistently faithful, regardless of what we're going through. Now, secondly, God says he want, he's doing all this. He's allowing all this and the end times, but also for us, because remember, verse 9, he's speaking to us now that when these times come, God wants us to endure and be faithful. Secondly, faith is in the Greek is pistis. Faith means a faithfulness, a conviction that God's word is truth. It's a belief. It's a trust in the Lord. And like endurance, faith grows stronger under stress. <laughs> you know, it's really easy to trust the Lord when everything's going perfect. But it's a whole lot more difficult and takes more spiritual maturity to trust God when things get harder. And this is how how, endure, how trial increases our faith. As it gets tried, we either run from God or to God. We either lean on something else to get us by or we lean on the Lord to get us through. And as we lean on God, we, our, our faith grows. You remember, I, w- I was reading last night, right before I went to bed, the, the apostle said, Lord, increase our faith. And God says, If you had feet the size of a mustard seed, you could uproot this mulberry tree and plant it in the sea. God, God wants us to, to our, our faith to grow stronger and he puts us in situations in which they grow stronger. And why? Because God is maturing us. We're always, you know, sanctification, you don't get saved and boop, you're perfected as much as you can on earth until you're in heaven. No, sanctification is a process. And as we walk with the Lord, we mature in faith we mature in righteousness we mature in holiness without which you will not see the Lord again I read that last night what we need there there needs to be a state of maturing in our walk with the Lord and this is a theme all throughout the Bible you know in the Garden of Eden one of the things that have always puzzled me God made a God took a world that was formless without void And he made it a beautiful place. He put in it the Garden of Eden, this lush, beautiful paradise. And then within the garden, he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Boop! Right there. And God says, don't eat the tree. Now the question I have is why would God put a tree that we were not supposed to eat in the Garden of Eden? Have you ever thought that? It's almost like I tell my child, "Hey, I'm gonna put a cookie on this table. I know you're hungry. Don't eat it." <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, you know. In a sense, it's like, "Is was God? Why would He do that?" <clears throat> you know. And then some people lean that the tree was an evil thing, and that 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 if they if they ate from this this evil tree, they would then know evil. But I don't believe that's what's happening. I believe. Man was eventually supposed to eat from this tree. I believe this tree was good. I believe this tree, to know good and evil like God does, which he says in Genesis 3, is to be able to discern and counsel and judge, but man Adam and Eve were still in their infancy. They had not matured to the place to understand these things. So I believe the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a good tree. It was something that they were supposed to have, that they were eventually supposed to eat from, but they were not yet ready or mature enough. So even in the Garden of Eden, my, 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 I suspect that God was maturing them in that process. And then we go to the story of Noah. And when you look at the Noatic Covenant, God asks Noah essentially to be the judge of the earth, which is very different than how he instructed Adam to be. And so already there's been a maturing process from Adam to Noah. And then we think of, uh, we, we think of um, the apostles... They went from learning to teaching. God was maturing them. And now think of the track of the church, us. Eventually, every single believer, God is going to bring us up into heaven. And what's he going to do with us? Put us in diapers and let us play harps on clouds all day? (laughs) No. He's going to place us on thrones to rule and to reign. In order to rule and to reign, I I, I suspect that means that there are things to rule over and things to reign over. Well, in order to rule and reign over something else, there must be something that needs to be ruled and reigned over. I, I suspect that when we are in our perfected state, we will know both good and evil and we'll be able to discern rightly. But again, God is going to take us and put us on thrones. Again, God is always maturing us and growing us. You know, people talk about heaven as if when we get to heaven, we're going to understand all things. I do not believe the first day in heaven is the first day when we have it all figured out. I believe our first day in heaven will be the beginning of our learning. I believe we will be learning in heaven forever. (laughs) I believe in heaven we will continue to be maturing and growing in the knowledge and the glory of God, that heaven will grow sweeter with time, more precious with time. We're going to grow more understanding with time and this is one of the reasons why god allows such trials in our life because like paul said he's producing in us now here in these fallen states he's producing endurance in us he's maturing us because this is what god does with humanity we even he even gave us glimpses of his plans in the Old Testament. But then when we get to the gospel, it's revealed. He he gives a more, a more understanding. And then the apostles are still confused. And then Paul and the writings come and the spirit comes and brings even more understanding. And then we have the book of Revelation. It's kind of like, well, what's going to happen? Well, when it comes, there's going to be even more understanding. Again, this is what God does. He's always maturing us. He's producing endurance and character and hope in us. He's maturing us, ultimately, to be more and more like his son. The more God grows us in in experience and consistency and trust in God, typically by allowing us to go through trials, the more we mature into his image, the the image of his son. So, So trials Obviously, trials are never fun, but they are also never wasted. (laughs) Romans 8.28 God uses these things in our lives to mature us and make us better and more and more and more Christ-like. And I believe when we step into heaven, I do believe there's going to be a radical transformation in our lives. But I believe God is going to continue to mature us when we get up there. Now, I'd like to make one more point before we go. Verse 10 says, read it as a whole. If anyone is to be taken captive, To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. As we look at the book of Revelation as a whole, the structure of verses 9 and 10 should be familiar to us. And that's one of the reasons I love these B-sides. Because we can look at the structure of the book. And, And the structure of verses 9 and 10 here in chapter 13 should be familiar to us. But it is in this familiarity that we can be confident that we have an accurate understanding of these verses. Verse 9 calls the reader to have ears to hear, and then verse 10 is about enduring. I want to read to us here the the letters to the seven churches, uh, chapters 2 and 3. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 7 it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. Revelation 2:11 He who has an ear to hear, who he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. Revelation 2:17 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. Now, in Revelation 2 verses 26 and 29, it in verses uh, it says, the one who conquers, and then later, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Revelation 3, 5 and 6, the one who conquers, later, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3, 12 and 13, the one who conquers, He later, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then finally, Revelation 3, 21 and 22, the one who conquers, later, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the book of Revelation, The call to hear is attached to conquering. The call to hear, the call to you, to me, to the church, the reason it's the reason the, letter, the letters were seven letters to seven different churches is what the word seven means. It means whole. It means complete. So God is writing to the whole church. Yes, he's writing to the seven specific churches, but he's writing to the universal church, to the Catholic church, and not the one in Rome, but that means universal church. And when we see when God says that he who has an ear consistently in Revelation, it's attached to enduring and conquering. To, to some form of understanding. So, point being, if if you truly take in God's word, it will produce in you. If you really believe God's word, if you really take it in, it will change you. You will endure. You will conquer. You will resist evil. You will be transformed. And again. In the book of Revelation, the call to hear is attached to enduring and and, and conquering and this is just to let you guys know where where I'm coming from here. This is one of my hesitations with the sinner's prayer. Uh, For those of you that maybe don't know what that is or it's just helpful for me to define what that means. The sinner's prayer is typically when someone says that you want to receive Jesus, then pray this prayer with me, uh, and, and you run through this prayer, and people pray the prayer, and then the, and then as it goes, if you've prayed this prayer, you are now saved, <clears throat> which may be true, Co- totally could be true, but this is not a biblical principle. <laughs> You know, there, there, it says, He who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord is saved. And Paul talks about that. Uh, and we've turned that into pray this prayer, you're good. Uh, which I'm not going to get into the context of that. There's There's way more to that there. But uh, one of the reasons I'm not quick to do the sinner's prayer, because you never see Jesus says, If you like this sermon and believe me, raise your hand. You just don't see that kind of thing. Again, I don't think there's anything wrong with the sinner's prayer. Um, But I think there's a lot of danger to it. You see, when we take in the gospel biblically, the the, the gospel, to take in the gospel is not primarily to be emotionally stirred, but to be transformed over the next hour. over the next day, over the next week, over the next year, the decade, our life, th- those, I want you to see, in all every example, when Jesus says, for he who has an ear, let him hear, there is an endurance over a lifetime that is expected. Jesus isn't saying, for he who has an ear, if you believe this and take it in, pray this prayer. Again, like, nothing wrong with the prayer. I think maybe there's even a place for it. But the danger is, people can pray the prayer, they get stirred, and they say, Oh, I'm saved. I prayed a prayer 20 years ago. But when you look at biblical conversion, it is not a one-time act. It is a lifetime. It's a lifetime of dedication, of consistency to the Lord. And so here's what we're seeing. Jesus is saying, "For He who has an ear, he who takes in my word, endure. In, endure for the next year, 10 years, 20 years, until you draw your last breath. If you have taken this in, you will endure. And And this is what 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 this is building to, to finish your race well to the glory of God, not have a one-time experience with God. <clears throat> now, also, one last thing before we go. Thinking about verses 9 and 10, on a surface level, God, God is informing the church that they will suffer captivity; that the sword of the sea beast they will have to face. But unlike many of the books of the, or, or, sorry, like many of the books of the Bible, Revelation is a book of great reversals. Think about the, the story of Ruth. Ruth loses her husband. In the beginning of the book, and by the end, she gains a husband. Think about the story of Esther. Haman makes gallows for the Israelites. Haman then hangs from his own gallows, That and Israel is saved. It's a great reversal. In the beginning of the Exodus, uh, the Exodus begins with life under Pharaoh, a tyrant. The end of the book, God is their king. The the Bible is filled with great reversals from beginning to end. Well, here in verse 10, we see the sea beast is imprisoning and killing God's people with the sword. Remember, chapter 12 really started section 2 of Revelation. So the beginning of section two begins with the sea beast imprisoning and killing God's people with the sword. But when we start to get to the end of section two, the end of the whole book, by by Revelation chapter 19 verses 20 and 21, the sea beast himself is thrown into captivity. So the one who's throwing Christians into captivity now is himself going to be thrown into captivity. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And the followers of the Antichrist will be slain by the sword of Jesus' mouth. So he's slaying others, and soon he will be slayed. So chapter 13 is describing some pretty dark days. But they will reverse. Christ will win and his people will be victorious. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So no matter how dark things get, no matter how glim or or, or, or how, how bad it appears to be, for every single believer who puts their faith in the Lamb and to Jesus Christ, there will be a great reversal. We will get up into heaven no matter how mistreated we are here on earth. We will get up into heaven, be resurrected as Christ was resurrected, and we will be greeted and celebrated over We will be perfected with new bodies. We will be justified by God Almighty publicly. It says, you know, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, which of course everyone needs repentance. But (coughs) Jesus talks about our reception into heaven as a celebration. And so these these pictures of reversal in God's word is showing us how God operates in our lives. He's revealing something about himself, that God is a great reverser, and he will reverse all the evil and darkness we have to more beautification for for those who have come to faith in their son, to those who have ears to hear, who have heard, and who endure to the end. (sighs) Let's pray, huh? God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask that you would be with us. God, we ask that you would be with our families. We ask, God, that that our children may know you and love you and adore you. We pray that you help us to be godly spouses and godly children and parents. We ask, God, that you... Would so grab a hold of us and help us to be full of endurance and faith. Mature us in this way. We do pray. We love you, God. We love you so much. Thank you for all that you've done for us. All that you're doing and all that you're about to do. To you be the glory. and In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you guys so much.
0: Thanks for joining us for this Calvary Baltimore B-Side. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, our website is calvarychapelbaltimore.org. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work that God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word, to live the Word, to share the Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore B-Side.